Father, thank you so much for the love and the kindness that you show us. And thank you for the book of Daniel, the purpose of apocalyptic and prophetic writing. How desperately we need this. We need your word. We confess that uh, your words bring life, and we need those, your words. We need to be like the sheep that hear your voice and follow you. So bless, please, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I realize the configuration is not most suitable to turn on and look at the screen, but we're going to do a bit of that before we dig into chapter 7, so you may have to scoot just a little bit. So what we're doing, first of all, I want to do a big shout out to uh, Dr. Minna for his covering last Wednesday. That was so, so kind. Yes, yes. Speech, speech. So um, I had a fantastic time uh, working vacay uh, with Lisa and Dave and Joni and uh, Julie. You'll be proud of me. I had a party studying psychopharmacology, practical uh, textbook. It was great. Loved it. <clears throat> Pop-Tarts are a drug. I figured that out. So, so I am on drugs. Pop-Tarts are drugs. And uh, the ability for me to, to, to know that Dr. Mena is going to cover the text well causes me to go, ah, there's not going to be any spooky, any kooky. It's going to be solid biblical teaching. And so that means so very, very much. All right. So just a reminder of this very famous chiasmus that's found in Daniel that's centered around the Aramaic passages in the text, which starts at uh, uh, chapter 2 and goes right on till the end of chapter 7, or verse 28. At, you know, prior to and after that, it's in Hebrew, no surprise, but it's uniquely in Aramaic here. So by way of reminder, yet again, in the first major section of the letter, there's a dream about four kingdoms, but all those kingdoms pass away. Because the inbreaking of the fifth kingdom that is eternal, the kingdom of God. And then you have that, at, at, you're closing out chapter 7, the very same thing. A vision of four world kingdoms, earthly, and how they are destructive and dangerous, and yet they all go away. And this inbreaking of God's eternal kingdom. So going a little deeper, there's persecution stories. The Three Friends in the Fiery Furnace, Daniel in the Lion's Den, which, which Dale taught on. And then the core of the chiasmus is that Daniel interprets the dream from Nebuchadnezzar, and he interprets the handwriting on the wall. All of which teach the singular idea that God knows how to humble a king. So it's not as though um, there's earthly chaos and everything's out of control. God is absolutely in control, full authority on his throne, and uh, he will judge all kings, all nations, for all their actions. So <clears throat> let's talk about apocalyptic. So, uh, uh, well, before let me back out of that, um, are you all familiar with the French word genre? Yes. All right, what is a genre? What's that? Theme. Okay, that's good. Somebody else? Type. Type. Yep. So it's a way of classifying, codifying a type of style or type of writing. Okay? So if I say uh, something about um, uh, a penny saved is a penny earned. 
if you were going to codify that or classify that, where would you put that? What category? Financial advice. Financial advice or... Cliché. Cliché. Or more of a proverb. It's like a wisdom statement. You might call it an aphorism or a maxim. It's a wisdom statement. Uh, Stitch in time saves nine. In other words, steady as you go and you'll get it done. Steady as you go, you know. So those are wisdom statements. Well, Proverbs says that a harsh word stirs up anger, but a soft word turns away wrath. That's a wisdom statement. So uh, wisdom literature is unique. And there's characteristics or qualities of wisdom literature. Can we, can we scoot Janice and Bruce in here? May the circle be unbroken. <laughs> We're right here. Yeah. Just polish the apple and set it right there on the desk. So, um, so genre is critical. Now, when it comes to the scriptures, genre is critical because it helps you know how to engage the text. Right? For example, what about taking the Bible literally? Some of us theologically pride ourselves because we take the word of God literally. Do we? Obviously, you can't take it all literally. Why? Because... um What's that, sir? God's not a bird. God's not a bird. The, 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 a dove flew down and lit on Jesus, and a voice from heaven said, you know, you're my beloved son in whom I will peace. Is the Holy Spirit a bird? No. No. He's a spirit. What about this? The trees of the field will clap their hands. They don't have hands. Now, now here we go. The there you go. Is God so powerful and so brilliant and so majestic in authority that he literally can make human hands sprout out of branch, off branches and make them clap? Could he, he sure could. Yeah. Absolutely. If we say he couldn't, then we have failed to recognize the sovereignty of God. The question is, is that something God would do? That's a horror movie. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my gosh, the trees have hands. So, but I was in Colorado a few years ago with Frank Vega, and the aspens are a unique tree. And when you see them blow in the wind, they do this. It is mesmerizing to see an aspen do that. Yes, that's right, jazz hands. So, so if you li- if you watch a tree, it's kind of like hands, and it's like they're clapping. So, so we have to understand that there's such a thing. God already made trees clap. There you go. So it's really good to acknowledge, you know, there's simile, there's metaphor, there's analogy, there, uh, there's symbol, there's imagery. For example, Jesus said to uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees and all that, you snakes, you pit of vipers. Were they a bunch of snakes in, in a hole in the ground? No. So what did he mean by the language, you're a brood of vipers? He meant what? Your behavior and your, um, your, uh, uh, 
Is a viper a dangerous snake? Is a garden, a common garter snake dangerous? No. So when he says you're a brood of vipers, you're a pit of vipers, he's saying you're extremely dangerous with malevolent motive. You're evil and you are deadly dangerous. And that, Sloan, is the work of Satan. So he wasn't calling them snakes. He was saying the way they relate to people and what they say about God is as dangerous and toxic as a pit viper. They are dangerous and they are malicious in their danger. Make sense? Okay. So you kind of go, well, that makes, it makes sense and it feels good on the brain until we get to apocalyptic, <laughs> which is a genre or a category, literary style. I've done this before, but let's make sure we nail it down. Uh, in Greek, there's a term called historia. The English version is obvious, history. When you look at the book of Acts, it's classified as a, the genre historia, history. Now, if that's the classification, and based on the class, we know how to engage the text, what do we know about engaging history? How do you read history theologically? Facts. What else? Studying all the sources, see how everything adds up. Sure. Great. Absolutely. Literal. What's that, sir? Literal. Literal. Okay. Very good. Very good. Um, yeah, it would have to move toward that direction, certainly, if it didn't go clearly there. But how about this? Is it prescriptive or de- descriptive? When you read the book of Acts, is it prescription or description? Predominantly. What is description? Describing. Pardon? Describing what happened. It described what happened. Prescription. What should happen. What should happen. A prescription is, here I'm writing you a prescription for, uh, you know. Eye drops. Eye drops. <laughs> I want to go a Z-pack. Do we even do Z-packs anymore? Azithromycin, you know. You've got a terrible sinus infection. I'm going to give you a Z-pack. And you're prescribed that by the doctor because the doctor's an authority. He knows what he's talking about. And you need that med to deal with this sinus infection. Take it exactly as I say to take it. That's a prescription. And uh, I'll see you in two weeks. So you go in two weeks and the doctor says, did you take it like I said, uh, like I instructed you to? And you go, well, I skipped a day. Now we're doing description. Makes sense. Okay. Basically, it's record keeping or instruction. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you're going to read Acts, how do you interpret this? The Church of Christ, love, Acts 2.38. The one who believes, repents, is baptized, is born again and gets the Holy Spirit. What do you do with that? Do you go the Church of Christ and say, ah! Baptism is required for salvation. It's right there in the book. Do you do that? Or do you go, well, but what about Acts 16? You know, the jailer is there, the earthquake, the shackles fall off. He's about to commit suicide because it's an honor-shame culture, and that's what he should do, quite frankly. But he doesn't. Paul says, don't, stop. We're all here. They bring in lanterns, and the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, 
Believe. That's all Paul said. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Well, which one is? <laughs> Are the Baptists right? They love Acts 16. Are the Church of Christ right? They love Acts 2. Or we can have real fun and say the Pentecostals, they have to get in the mix. Acts 8 and Acts 10. You get tongues and the Spirit and this and that and the other. And sometimes it comes before baptism. Sometimes it comes after baptism. So there's all kinds of confusion there. And then there's the issue with the feet on the cross. And exactly. So who's right or what's right? Well, first of all is stop trying to force prescription on something that is descriptive. That cleans up a lot of the mess. And if you're going to throw a good net over all of it, you'd say, I'm responsible for all of it. No Church of Christ person is going to take Acts 2.38 away from me. That's my verse. Nobody's taking anything away from me because I'm going to own theologically all of Acts. And I'm not going to call something out because I don't like it. But I'm smart enough to know description is not prescription. Don't confuse them. All right, let's test our hypothesis. Is there, descript- is, is there prescription in Acts? Yes. You bet there is. You look for it, but it's there. Absolutely, it's there. So you've got to be careful with what you're reading and pay attention to what you're reading. So what about the, the, uh, the genre called um, apocalyptic? Okay. Here's some of the characteristics of it. This is not a comprehensive list, but it's going to get at it. First of all, the seer, the person who's receiving revelation, tends to have an altered state of consciousness. I was sleeping on my bed, and all of a sudden I had a vision. Or in a trance, I saw a vision. There's an altered sense of awareness. Something is happening to this person. Okay? And a revelation of some sort is communicated to this particular person. There's typically angelic mediation. So you have, you have somebody who's going to receive a revelation and they're somehow, they're somehow transported to a heavenly dimension, a spiritual dimension. There's an altered state. And there's an interpreter or a, a spirit guide, an angelic being that guides them in, in what they're seeing. That's very common. There's a discourse, oftentimes it's found in cycles, and the storyline is repeated again and again. You see that in Revelation. Uh, There's an ethical discourse. There's something about the purpose behind this. There is injustice going on. There's an ethical problem. Christ says things are esoteric. They're secretive and sneaky, and there's symbolism, and there's symbolism in imagery, there's symbolism in numbers, and these are non literal pointers you can't you, you, you have to be careful to not believe that a monster coming out of the sea a lion with wings is literally some deformed mythical creature some oddity that, that Satan has the power to generate this horrific creature that comes out of the sea and another one with all these horns and all these things. You have, if you force the imagery as though there's a literal flesh and blood creature that's like that, you're going to miss the point of the apocalyptic writing. You're going to miss the point. So you've got to be super careful with that. 
uh, prophecy is oftentimes after the fact. Okay? After the fact. You're, you're giving a prediction about something that's happened in the past. Now, we, we hear that and we go like, well, that doesn't sound right. I thought all prophecy was supposed to be telling the future. Well, actually, no, it's not. It does both. It can, it can bring a predictive perspective to something that's happened in the past. How many of you in here have said to someone else, I told you so? We do that with our kids. We do it with our kids. We do it with our friends. And sometimes things that happened in history past are referred to in prophetic or predictive ways because we don't want to repeat the past. There's a lesson learned so that we don't stumble in the present or the future. So sometimes it's Vaticanium it's makes event to, to prophesy, to literally to see after the event. Uh, there's typically a recital of history and inter- intertwining of future history. Things are blending past, present, future. Uh, oftentimes, it's anonymous. It's a pseudonym. No one is saying, hi, it's me, Chris Perry, writing this. Now, sometimes you do get the identification of the author, but not always. Uh, there's clear in-group, out-group language. It's absolutely in-group, out-group. Insiders, outsiders. There's typically a negative assessment of current history, the context. There's always the promise of divine judgment. To borrow the language of the fifth kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God, it's coming and there's going to be a judgment that is cosmic. In all kings, the wicked will be judged in the most horrific way. Salvation will be granted to the righteous, the in-group, and there will be a restoration. The kingdom that will have no end and finally, just a comment that there's typically a view that is transcendent, uh, perspective of, of heaven's view looking down, on, looking down on the earth from God's transcendent perspective. Okay, so those are some of the qualities, characteristics, and purposes of apocalyptic writing. Now, I introduced that because chapter 7 shifts into apocalyptic. Prior to, it's court stories, court tales. Daniel and his three friends are brought in, and there's this political leader, and this is said and that is said, and yet there's their opponents and these Chaldeans and seers and astrologers and all these, these magicians and things pitted against Daniel and his three friends, and, and they're kind of trapped in this legal courtroom setting and God redeems every time in its tale after tale of how Daniel is proven right and all of the king's best leaders are proven wrong. Jealousy ensues. Persecution follows jealousy. So we start apocalyptic. All right, so let's look at it. Chapter 7 from the book of Daniel And I want you to try to remember, you know what, I'm going to leave this up. And we'll see if you can spot it while we're reading the text. So chapter 7, verse 1. In the year, the first year of Belshazzar, Belshazzar, 
king of Babylon. He's the son of Nebuchadnezzar, by the way. So the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and vision in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and told the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Do you see anything that would be in keeping with apocalyptic writing style? What do you see, Sandra? Absolutely. It's like he's watching TV. It's like he's having a dream, and he's aware in his dream that he's watching his dream. That's an altered state of consciousness. Something's going on. Uh, So Daniel said, I was looking at my vision, looking in my vision, like he's watching the TV screen. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. What about the four winds? Symbol and number. Non-literal pointers. What would four winds and a great sea point us to? The four kingdoms. Possibly the four kingdoms, yep. What else? Where did the four winds come from? The four great directions, north, south, east, west. Yeah. So it's like this perspective is coming. It's a global perspective. Four winds stirring things up. The sea, all of humanity, all of the world, all of existence. Um, by the way, an ancient, an ancient culture, uh, writings like what's called the Enuma Elish, you have, you have stories, ancient Mesopotamian stories, about Baal. This, this is a Canaanite religion, by the way, not Mesopotamian, Canaanite, where Baal is Lord and Yom is chaos. And Yom is sometimes the god that represents the chaos of the sea and the, and the tumultuous waters and the waves and all of that and it is Baal Baal, we might call it Baal counters and pushes back against the chaos that's why Baal means Lord or God so you get this chaotic sea scene, some people say hey boy that sounds like ancient Babylonian culture or ancient uh, uh, Mesopotamian Chaldean culture or maybe Canaanite these kinds of imageries, uh, images that are used. And then four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, but it had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and set up on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And they said this to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, The beast also had four heads and dominion 
was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among them. And three of the previous horns were plucked out before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like a human has eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts. Wow. All right, so there's several perspectives we need to consider when, we, when you read about these four creatures, fantastical creatures. One, Daniel is speaking from the futurist perspective. Now, for example, we who live in our era and our age today, when you read that there was this creature was like a bear, verse 5. When you hear the bear, what's one of the first things you, you think of today in our culture? Russia. 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 And so they read this in a very futurist way, and they see these as political kingdoms. Some see it as the U.S. is involved in this, <clears throat> Russia. Some even say the United uh, uh, U.K. and the uh, uh, world organizations, NATO, all these kinds of things play into Daniel like this. Now, is it possible that God is doing that? The bears Russia. Is that possible? Well, sure, it's possible. But if we're going to follow, if we're going to engage based on the genre that we have, that we know we're working with, what is probably happening? Is this prophecy before the fact or after the fact? Probably. I'm, I'm being very careful with my words right now. Could be both, and I like that, and, and we'll get to that in a bit. But but Daniel's writing; he's got a he has a vision. He's seeing something. What do you think he's seeing? He's seeing What's that? I think he's already seen two of them. You know? Yes. Yes. Yep. You're you're going right down the line. Yep. So if this is a prophecy after the fact. Okay, which is what Freddie's alluding to, then the first creature is probably Babylon. And the second creature is probably the Medo-Persian Empire. And the third is possibly Greece. And the last one, Rome. Now, in that case, Maddie, you're right. It has a prophecy before the fact and a prophecy after the fact combined. Okay, which begs another issue. When was this written? Was it written just in 6th century? Or was it written 1st century B.C., 1st century A.D.? Because if it is, now we're shifting back to prophecy after the fact. Okay. So, to, to Maddie's point, which is very, very wise, let's say we're all so smart, every one of us. We're all brilliant, and we have interpreted <coughs> Daniel exactly as God intended, as Daniel intended, and we're literally talking about Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman culture. 
Done. Case closed. Does that mean these, these uh, prophetic images have no value for us today? There's none. There's no value. It's past. That's Rome. Rome's gone. Is that how we handle the book of Daniel? No. Why? Exactly. It's constantly trying to unveil the present for the reader. Yes. Wherever they're reading it. Yes. So, or in other words, I would word Justin's statement this way. Every generation of Christians is obligated to read the prophetic books and interpret them for their time. In other words, was Hitler an antichrist figure? Absolutely. Of course he was. Mussolini, Stalin, absolutely. Anyone who is radically and horrifically abusive, maybe even someone who should be called a pit of vipers, are anti-Christ figures, like Pharisees and Sadducees. So every culture is obligated to interpret this stuff for their own world. And let's be really wise, since we're Christians... If we are Christians and we're reading prophetic words, what influence should it have on us? Should it make us get our shotguns, stock up on rice, and hide in the closet? No. Then what's the then what's the purpose of what's that? (laughs) Then then what then what's the why should we read this stuff and be benefited by it? Why? What would prophecy? an apocalyptic call us to do? Recognize. Recognize what? What's happening? Like, recognize it. Like, if we know what's coming, then we'll be able to see it. And All right. I don't know, stand firm. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Preach the gospel harder. Stand firm. What else? To give us hope. Ah, there it is. This is, this is a dead giveaway that we miss the point of apocalyptic. We get scared. It scares us. That, okay, you just missed the whole point. It's not to make you scared. <gasps> Monsters with eyes and weirdness and all that and horns. Oh, oh, run away, run away. No, that's not the point. The point is we should read this. We would have hope. We'd want to face the day with endurance and dignity and be faithful and not be ashamed of the gospel. We'd have hope. We would see it as a positive thing, but what do we usually do today? Scares us to death and we're terrified. Well, but our, we're supposed to be part of that hope. That's the reason why we are to know and observe. And, and when the people that don't know Christ are fearful, are scared of what's going on, we are supposed to be a part of that hope that Christ wants us to tell people about. Yes, it looks scary, but... <coughs> this is what is going to really be happening. So, David, are you trying to tell us that we're supposed to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth in a culture of persecution? Yeah. Huh, I wonder who said that. Mm. We know the word, mm-hmm. and God has told us, you know, he has told us. I mean, there's nothing that happens that God hasn't already told us this is going on. Then, then we have a hope to offer people that don't know the word or that are scared to death because they, you know, they don't understand, you know, God has already spoken into this. All right.
you're, you're nailing it, Edie. So let's drive this. Let's drive this down really hard. If you engage with anyone who's into apocalyptic writing, you ready? I'm going to say something ugly. They're alarmists. You know what I mean by alarmist? What does that mean? Okay. All right. Your, your warning buzzers should be going on if you hear an alarmist perspective. That's number one. Number two, they throw all kinds of weight, Justin, in the timeline. It's all about the timeline. Got to figure this thing out. Work the formula so that we know by this date that's going to happen. And by this date, da, 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 da. like we're going to get a jump on the boogeyman. We're going to figure him out before he gets to us so we can run and hide. Okay. The alarmist. The person that is deeply engaged in chronology and the timeline. And the person who has no compassion for those broken by society. They do nothing to engage culture. And fourth, they're hiding their secret sin. Be careful with anybody who gets involved in apocalyptic writing from that posture. It's dangerous stuff. Don't buy it. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't do that. Okay. When we read Revelation, when we read Daniel and other writings, we should have so much hope that we can face the day with grace and dignity and we can be like Jesus, innocent as doves and wise as serpents, literally playing out being the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And if someone fixates on the timeline and they fixate on an alarmist mindset, they literally are missing the heart of God. And what they're revealing is that they lack faith and they're panicked. And when you do that, you'll, you're, you're not going to interpret Scripture well. It's just not going to happen. So you're, you're not saying you're not paying attention to the signs of the time. No, of course not. We have to. We have to. But, but... That gives us an urgency to share the gospel. Absolutely. Like, for example, talk about signs of the times. I just read a newsletter from Hillsdale College. Seven, seven point one or 7.6 million people have been let into our borders. At least. At least. Some say up to 10 million. We, know, we have known spies and terrorists that have flooded inside our borders. We have, we have government policy set to bankrupt this nation right now in full force. California is about $73 billion in debt right now. California is about to collapse. You know, there's, when, you, when you read the prophets, like I'm in Jeremiah right now, I'm sure this was Justin, see things in, in Jeremiah that's going on in Judah that are going on here today. You know, and he speaks of them of them sacrificing children. Yes. All. Yes. And why did they do that? They thought, if I can sacrifice my firstborn, I'll have a bunch more for fertility. But we sacrifice children for convenience. Yes. Which is worse. Who's the pit of vipers? And, and this thing that's going around to be signed, and I listened to a program on it yesterday. At the very end of that, it says the legislature will have no 
it's an amendment to the Constitution, so they, they will have no oversight. No sight. No, no sight. Get ready to give birth. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. It's horrific. So uh, there's a reference in, I believe it's Chronicles Lee, that talked about one of the tribes of Judah being men who knew the times, men of wisdom who knew the times. They could read culture. We absolutely should be on point. I mean on point, you know. But just because the sun rises tomorrow, that's not a miracle. That's not an astrological phenomenon. <laughs> not at all. Well, sure, sure, sure. But, but we counter that, Edie, by saying this, this is the laws of physical science. God made the heavens and the earth. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. You know. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He can shut it down. But here's the deal. We can't take what is normal, line it up so we think it's supernatural. Can't do that. Your major, that's an alarmist position. You don't do that. So the fact is, uh, we are commanded by, by, the, by God's word on multiple occasions. Jesus said to the Pharisees, can you not read the sky? Talk about a proverb. Don't you know red sky at night, sailors delight? He literally says this. Can't you know it's going to rain? Can't you look at the sky? Why can't you look around and see that the Messiah is standing right in front of you? Yeah, so we, yeah, we, should, we should see these things. But we have to be super, super careful to make this stuff fit our agenda, fit our alarmist agenda, our own paranoia, our own need for control, hence the timeline. we got to be super careful because if you do, you know, Justin, I know you know this, you can take, if you're going to do that, you can take apocalyptic and make it say anything you want it to say. <laughs> I was at a, at a church once and I, I needed a lamb. For a Christmas musical. We needed a lamb. And I got this lamb. And it was a really beautiful story. And once it was over. The big production. And I brought the lamb back to the sheep farmer. And all that stuff. I found out about a couple weeks later. He wanted to schedule an appointment with me. And, and another staff member. Because there's some things he wanted to tell us. I'm like okay. So he scheduled the meeting. And I sit in the office. And this guy is explaining us. That he was reading a U.S. map. And he looked at the outline of the state of New York. Can you envision on the map you got it? And he said, you know what that is? Uh, the outline of New York? And he goes, nope. That's the head of a woman. Look at it. Look how it's shaped. And he goes, that's the whore of Babylon. It's New York. Like he figured out <laughs> something nobody else could see. And I mean, he went to town to Cookville on the, New York is the horror of Babylon because it's shaped kind of like the head of a woman with long hair. That's the alarmist person, and it, it's super, super scary. So let's, let's, let's wrap this up. From Daniel's perspective, if we're anchoring this in history, this is absolutely a clear reference to Babylon, Medo-Persian culture, Greece culture, uh, Greek culture, in Rome, but also it applies to all other cultures. Any antichrist, anti-God, pro-dominion, pro-abuse culture, Venice, pick them, Venezuela, U.S., the average abortion clinic in the U.S., 
It's all subject to the judgment of God. Russia, Ukraine, we can go on and on and on and on and on. There's never a time in the history of mankind where there wasn't sin on planet Earth post-fall. And God is always busy about the judging of his creation. Always. If you get the heart of Daniel, and Maddie, you said it. If you get the heart of Daniel, you get the heart of hope and faithfulness. Oh, wait, were there a series of court tales? Were there a series of persecution stories in the court tales? And did Daniel face it well? That's what these prophetic images are all about. Can you keep your cool when you're in front of Nebuchadnezzar, who's like a big giant monster? And Can you keep your cool when you're in his courtroom facing him? Absolutely, yes. Yes. Because you know his kingdom will be destroyed. The wings will be plucked off. And that man will fall. And there'll be another kingdom. So what I'm trying to say is, if we're going to get apocalyptic, we've got to get the purpose behind it. And that is to give wisdom, encouragement, hope, an inspiration to be faithful in all cultures at all time, even in times of persecution. That's why apocalyptic is written. Because there's in-group and out-group and the outgroup, the persecutory group, doing the abusing will be judged by God. There will be a restoration one day. The in-group, this is, this is Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Why, why were they pure? Because it says they did not love their own lives even unto death. They would not, they would not deny the lamb. That's how they washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made themselves white and pure. So when you get this, you understand that apocalyptic calls us to holiness, calls us to hope, and calls us to faithfulness. Okay? Not the alarmist position, not the timeline position, none of that stuff. It always it always ends poorly for that person. It never goes well. Uh, camp Brother Camp is one of the most recent examples. You remember that? He decided the Lord was coming. I don't know what was October 23rd or something like that. Oh, my goodness. He just won in a long list of men who was, was sensationalizing the timeline and exploiting us weak-hearted, weak-minded Christians. And we get caught up in the day of the Lord returning. So, all right. There you go. It's a good time to, to jump off. I know this is intense, but we've got to take Scripture seriously and be careful to not to drink the Kool-Aid of the latest spooky kooky stuff that's out there. I can still remember 2012. And? We're still here. We're still here. Yep, absolutely. We're still here. So, oh, they've gone to get the elements. I was in a... Uh, Bit of a bit of a hurry when we we were getting things set up. You haven't said A one time tonight. Chris, are you going to do the rest of the chapter next time? Uh, yes. Okay, great.
yep, yep, yep. And it gets so fun because it's the Ancient of Days. Oh, my goodness, Justin. How does that interface with Revelation 1? You know what? Are you going to be here Wednesday? He's so humble. If the Lord wills it, I shall be here. If not, I shall be elsewhere. Um, if you're here, man, that's, that's your bailiwick. It's up to you. I'm just making sure that we got there because that's where the hope is. That's where the hope is. The fifth kingdom. It's coming. It's coming. So, let's read this together. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, the coming kingdom. All right, I think they're about to service the, uh, the bread and the cup, the bread and the wine. So... <laughs> What's that? They're drinking it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's First Corinthians eleven, right there. They drank up all the. <laughs> yes, yes. They're slaughtering the fattened calf. It's, they're really taking it seriously here. Which is a pop tart, basically. <laughs> Very small. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it may have been, of course, Christmas, and our daughter was the angel of the... Ah, Brooke? Yeah, Brooke. And, uh, but they had, they had live animals. And the donkey kicked the sheep and killed them. Are you serious? <laughs> no. But he uh, saying that the sheep was laying there dead. <laughs> <laughs> all fluffed up, you know. Oh. Sleepy, just don't be alarmed. He's sleepy. Yes, yes, all little children. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. We we may have to have an altered state of consciousness consciousness and imagine that we're taking the Lord's Supper together. Okay, I'm holding the bread. Hey, I
be enough? Are you sir? You think? I'm gonna wait. No, no, no. I mean, I'm gonna pour some more if we need more. Okay. <laughs> hey, Justin, I, I can't help but believe that that Jesus, knowing he was about to die, breaks the bread. And he's not panicking. He's not, he's not in this doom and gloom mindset that he may even be smiling as he... And by the way, it's pretty hard crust on this bread. We think it's this wonder bread. You know, No, it's not. It's not surly. And it's been baked in an oven. It cracks. And a, a Eucharistia, he gives thanks. In Greek, good joy, good thanks. And he says, hey, this is my body which is broken for you. And he has this, it's like the, the Hebrews 12 perspective. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility of sinners, so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. That for Paul and the Pauline church community, when you take the bread and you take the wine, you are taking in hope. And that's beautiful. So take a moment, prepare your heart to take in hope. And then when you're ready.